right, good morning. It's good to see you. If we've never met, my name's Jay, part of the team here. So glad you're here. Mark already said it, but here you are, the responsible ones, you know? <laughs> Your body's telling you it's, it's 9 a.m., but it's actually 10 a.m., and you're just powering through. So well done. You, you love the Lord more than most, I guess. <laughs> That's probably not true. Or maybe it is. I don't know. Either way. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had this really interesting uh, situation, something I've never been through before. I, it, mostly it was my fault. I, I, I sort of agreed to a schedule that was really unwise. I had agreed to be at an event in Philadelphia on a Thursday, and then I had agreed to be at uh, another event in Los Angeles the very next day on Friday. So uh, this is a couple weeks ago. I go to Philadelphia. I'm a part of this event. The event ends around 3 o'clock, and I've got this flight out of Philly, and I've got to get to L.A. by that night because I've got to sleep in a hotel and then, you know, be ready for this other event the next morning. And I get to the airport early. I get to the Philadelphia airport early because just on the off chance that I can get on an earlier flight. And I rush to the terminal, I check, I, I get through security and I check and I realize there is a flight leaving Philly to Atlanta, which is my layover. And then um, from Atlanta, I'd be able to hopefully get to LA. So I rush to the gate and I ask them, hey, I'm on this later flight two hours from now, but are there any seats on this flight? And I was like, I was ready to pay an extra fee and all of that. And yet, uh, miracle of miracles, the, the person there is like, yeah, there is room. You don't have to pay extra. Just hop on. So it's like the Lord provides, you know. So I get on this flight in Philadelphia two hours earlier than my original flight. I fly to Atlanta. Now on my flight to Atlanta, I'm praying, Lord, may there be another early flight in Atlanta to Los Angeles. I get to Atlanta. I don't know if you've ever been to the Atlanta airport. It is the largest and busiest airport in the world, I think. Uh, and um, so I get there and I'm just, I'm like a track star. I'm carrying my backpack, I'm just running, you know, running through the Atlanta airport. I check the signs uh, and I realize there is a flight leaving Atlanta to LA two hours earlier. So I rush to the gate. I talk to the person at Delta. Is there any way? And I'm praying in my mind, Lord, please continue the part, to part the seas, you know? And miracle of miracles, you guys, the Delta attendant person there is just like, yeah, there's room, hop on. It's like two flights in a row. And now I'm just like, the Lord is good. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna get into, I'm gonna get into LA at a reasonable hour. I was originally supposed to land at like 11.30 p.m., which would have been 2.30 a.m. Uh, East Coast time. Um, and I gotta get up early the next morning for this meeting, but now I'm gonna get in at like 9 p.m. Like that's manageable, I can do this. This is so good. So I hop on the plane, I'm feeling great. I'm just like so grateful to the Lord. You know, he like provides, right? I'm like such a good Christian for the first hour of that flight. And then, and then there's a, there's a, a minor medical emergency on the flight a woman fainted, and she ended up being okay. So she ended up being okay, but because of protocols, our flight had to make an emergency landing in Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> so now I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, like, you know, the Lord is still good. He's like, you know, Albuquerque, it's not that bad. It'll just be quick, in and out. This woman's, got, she seems okay. The paramedics will take her. It'll be really fast. We'll just take off. 
we land, and then paramedics, you know, jump on board, and they're helping her out, and I'm praying for this woman. Finally, they get her off the plane, her family, and she gets into, um, you know, the ambulance, and they take her to the hospital there just to check on things. And then the, the, the captain of the flight is like, okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to try to get you back up in the air as soon as possible, but we've got to refuel and we've got to wait until, you know, we have clearance to take off. I'm like, how long do we have to wait, you know? We sat at the airport in Albuquerque for two and a half hours, you guys. <laughs> and the whole time, you know what I'm doing. I'm doing what you would be doing, which is like all the math. Like, had I just stayed on my original flight... Would I have actually ended up in L.A. sooner? So anyways, two and a half hours later, we finally take off. We land in LAX. It's like 11, 11.30 p.m., which is actually the same time I would have landed on my original flight. And I don't know if you've been to LAX recently. It is the worst airport in the world. If you're from L.A., my apologies, but it's true. It's just objectively true. I get, I get off of LAX, and I, I, um, I had gotten a rental car, so I get out. Now, there's all this construction happening at LAX right now, so I get out to the curb where the rental car bus is supposed to pick me up and take me to the rental car place, which is only like 1.2 miles away. It's really close. But there's so much construction, and LAX is so congested right now that the bus can't even pull up to the curb. Some people next to me are like, no, the way you got to do it now is you got to run out into the street and just hop on the bus as it drives by, (laughs) which is actually manageable because cars are not moving. It's like a parking lot there, right? So I see the Hertz bus, and (laughs) the guy next to me is like, no, I'm not kidding, man. You got to run out there. So I grab my bag. I'm like, okay. So I run out in the middle of these cars, and I start knocking on the Hertz bus door. She opens the door. She's like, get on. So I jump on. And you guys, 1.2 miles away, we, it took us, it, this, you're going to think I'm lying. It took us an hour to get to the car rental place. I finally get to the car rental place. It's like almost like 1 a.m. It's like 12.30 a.m. I walk into the car rental place, and the line is like 50 people deep. So it takes me another hour to get my car rental, and then I finally drive to my hotel, and it's like 2 in the morning, which is 5 in the morning, East Coast time. That's how my body felt. I sleep for a few hours. I get up, and I go to this other event in L.A. just a few hours later. Now, I share that story with you because my emotional trajectory, the emotional journey I took on this trip epitomizes what I believe to be common on the Christian journey. It begins with like miracle after miracle. And we think to ourselves, oh my goodness, I chose to follow the Lord and he is parting the sea. And then you are hit with unexpected ordeal after unexpected ordeal. And you're questioning, you're wondering to yourself, like, I thought God was so good when he got me on those two earlier flights. But what happened? What is this Albuquerque nonsense? And what is this craziness at LAX? And why am I, like, I can't sleep tonight. And I've got to go to this other, why? Like, Miracle after miracle that leads to ordeal after ordeal. Can you relate? Like early on, you just think the life of following Jesus is just God parting the seas. And then you find yourself eventually 40 years in the wilderness. You wonder, like, is God good? 
maybe you begin to wonder, like, is God actually even, like, with me anymore? I want to comfort you first with this. This has been true since the earliest days of the people of God. I mean, let me show you just a famous story that most of you are familiar with. Um, The Exodus story, right? The Exodus story. When the people of God journey out of slavery in Egypt and they follow Moses as Moses leads them into the promised land. But how does that story go? Exodus 14, verses 29 to 30. This is the story of God literally parting the seas. You know the story. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. Miracle. God parts the seas. But then where do they go from there? In the book of Joshua, we learn the Israelites had moved about the wilderness for 40 years. Those 40 years come after God has parted the seas, not before. They leave Israel. God does this incredible miracle, rescues them from the clutches of Pharaoh and Egypt. And you would think at this point, God is with us. God is for us. Everything is going to be okay. Except in their story, what, is it, what happens? They spend four decades wandering the wilderness Obstacle after obstacle, confusion, doubt, worry, wondering, is God still with us? The Israelites miraculously crossed the Red Sea only to find themselves wandering the wilderness for 40 years. And then, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we are journeying slowly and methodically through the Gospel of Matthew, the biographer Matthew, as he tells the story of Jesus. And you know, a few weeks ago, we had baptisms here, and we talked about how Jesus sort of embodies the Exodus story by entering the waters of baptism and rising anew from those waters, this incredible miracle that symbolizes the new creation and the renewal that Jesus has come to bring. But after that, what happens? Let's read the story. Matthew 3, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Jesus is baptized, and, and when he rises from the waters, you remember the story, the heavens break open, and the voice of God the Father says, this is my son, and I love him. Miracle of miracles, symbol, a symbol of new life and recreation and renewal. This is like a high point in the story of Jesus. But what happens right after Matthew chapter 4? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into what? The wilderness to be tempted. Last week Dana told us, this is really beautiful, the, a better word than tempted would be tested. Talk more about that in a moment. But after his baptism, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River only to find himself tested in the wilderness for 40 days. Listen, Matthew, who is thoroughly Jewish, you know this, we've talked about this already. Matthew is intentional in the framing of the story here. 
The Israelites failed time and time again in the wilderness, but Jesus, what we will see is that Jesus prevails in the wilderness, and in doing so, he shows us the way forward through the various wildernesses of our lives. That's why we are taking these temptation or test stories of Jesus in the wilderness. It's why we're taking it slow. Last Sunday, if you were here, Dana talked about the first temptation or test that the devil um, proposes to Jesus. And he says, hey, you're the son of God, right? If you're the son of God, you're starving right now. Tell these stones to become bread. And what does Jesus say? He says, no, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's essentially Jesus teaching us and embodying the truth that one of the ways in which we not only survive, but thrive in the wilderness of our lives is to believe and to embody the truth that God alone is the sole provider of all that which, all that we need most. And today we arrive at the second test or second temptation. Matthew 4, verses 5 to 7 says this, Then the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And then the devil says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Bless you. For it is written... He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift, up, lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so the second test or temptation from the devil to Jesus is essentially the devil says to Jesus, hey, if you're really the son of God, then why don't you throw yourself down from this high point? Throw yourself down. And I know that that looks like um, immediate death, but you're the son of God. It says in the Bible that the angels will, will lift you up. You won't hit your foot against a single rock. You'll be fine. Just throw yourself. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Scripture also says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, what is happening here? First of all, the enemy of God, the devil, we said this already, but in August, we're going to do a whole series on spiritual, uh, spiritual realities and the devil and Satan, because this causes a lot of confusion. So if that's you and you can't wait till August, I totally understand. Come talk to me. Would love to chat, because there's a lot here that we don't have time to get into. Like, who is the devil? Does he have a pitchfork? Is he red? Right? All that stuff. Well, happy to chat. The answer is no, by the way, but um, happy to chat. But first, let's just assume that what the story tells us is true, that there is an enemy of God, and this enemy of God encounters Jesus in the wilderness, in Jesus' weariness and exhaustion. Remember, he has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he tempts or he tests Jesus. And this second test, the devil actually quotes the Bible. The Hebrew scriptures, what you and I might call the Old Testament. The devil is actually quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Let me read it to you. It says this. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. I mean, this psalm sounds 
awesome. This psalm sounds awesome for us. I mean, these verses, like, yeah, I want to print that out and put it, like, I want to tattoo it on my forearm so that, like, as I go through the wildernesses of my own life, as I face trial and struggle and pain and grief and loss, I could look to this verse and know that no matter what, no matter where I go, no matter what I go through, God will command his angels concerning me to guard me in all of my ways. And the angels will lift me up in their hands so that I will not strike my foot against a stone. This sounds awesome. And this is the verse the devil quotes to Jesus. So what is the problem? The problem is when we look at this verse against the backdrop of our actual lived lives, it actually doesn't make sense. Many of you, not all of you, many of you in this room are followers of Jesus. Some of us are not. And if that's you, if you're here and you're like, I'm not really a Christian, I'm not really religious one, we are so thrilled you're here. Maybe you're just exploring or you're looking for some hope. If that is you, we are, we are grateful you are here. And come chat with us. We would love to journey alongside you if that would be helpful to you. But many of us in this room would say, like, no, I, I am a Christian. Like, I, I follow Jesus. I'm trying my best to follow Jesus, to live a life of love toward God and my neighbors and one another. I'm trying to do all those things. And yet, the reality of my life is that it feels like my feet do strike up against stones. Like life is not all smooth sailing. Yes, I love God and I am following Jesus to the best of my ability, but this psalm doesn't actually make sense because my life feels like I have fallen off cliffs before. And it didn't necessarily feel like the angels of God held me up in their hands. I am trying my best to love God and follow Jesus, but the reality is it does feel like when that relationship broke or that job disappeared or the finances collapsed or when I think about that deep, dark thing inside of me that I just can't shake, that feels like a cloud hovering overhead or that addiction or the depression or the anxiety or the fear or the uncertainty. When I think about the reality of my life, the truth is it does feel like my foot has struck up against the stones of life. So this psalm is problematic. And the devil has a point. I mean, I, I thought this is the Bible, you guys. I thought that if I fell, the angels would hold me up. Life would be grand. It would be miracle after miracle, early flight after early flight, not a delay in Albuquerque. So what, what is happening? Jesus' response actually points to the answer, and it's, in a strange and beautiful way, it is a, an incredibly hopeful answer for the reality of our lives. Jesus says, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Those words are directly pulled from Deuteronomy. The story in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Well, the verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it actually says this, complete sentence says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Now, Jesus is quoting this line. He doesn't include at Massah, 
But for good Jewish audiences, which was the intended audience of Matthew, Jesus' biographer, they would have read that line. They would have known Jesus responded by quoting Deuteronomy 6. And immediately in the Jewish mind, they would have understood, oh, Jesus is citing a previous story. The story of the Israelites testing God at Massah. Now, that might not be that familiar to you and I, but it would have been intrinsically familiar to Matthew's original audience. So what happened at Massah? Why does Jesus respond by saying, devil, I know you're tempting or testing me to test God and his protection and his control over my life, but the scriptures tell us, do not put the Lord your God to the test, as the Israelites did at Massah. So what happened? At Massah, a little bit of backstory. Massah is a location, it's a geographic location, it's a particular location in the Exodus story. And when the Israelites and the Exodus story, remember that's a part of their wilderness journey, when the Israelites arrive at Massah, what you need to know is that God has already done miracle after miracle after miracle. When the Israelites arrive at Massah, God has already parted the Red Seas and rescued Israel from Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. God has already provided water for their thirst in the desert. He has already provided food for their hunger in the wilderness by raining, literally raining bread and birds from the sky. God has shown up to the people of God in the wilderness time and time again. And then after all of that, the Israelites arrive in Exodus chapter 17, at this place called Massah. Let me show you what happened. The people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb and strike the rock and the water will come out of it for the people to drink. And so Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, and this is key, you guys, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Notice the people were not testing God's ability to provide water. This is crucial. Notice that the people of Israel are not saying, can God provide water for us or not? Can God do miracles or not? They wouldn't question that. They've already seen God do, do all of that. They've seen God provide water. They've seen God provide food. They've seen God part the seas so that they can cross to safety on dry land. They have history with God's miracles in their lives, with God's provision. That is not what they are questioning. It's not what they are testing. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? They weren't testing God's ability. What were they testing? They were testing God's proximity. They were testing God's presence. 
Is the Lord among us or not? Listen, protection in the wilderness of life is not about God's ability, nor is it about his willingness to provide. This is one of the reasons why looking back on our own histories with the Lord and considering the history of God's people throughout human history is so critically important. Because what seems unclear in the present becomes incredibly clear when you look back throughout your own history and the history of God's people. God has always provided. So much of life right now feels uncertain, right? Pandemics and economic collapse and war and global uncertainty. Guess what? God has brought his people through pandemics and economic collapse and global uncertainty and war time and time again. Just look through history. What is unclear now becomes so abundantly clear when we look back. But that's not the test. God's people here are not questioning if God is able, nor even if he is willing. What they are questioning is, is the Lord among us or not? Is he here? Is he with us? Is he for us? Protection in the wilderness of life is not about God's willingness nor his ability. Protection in the wilderness of life is about proximity to his presence. Do you believe that God is still with you? And if you believe he is still with you, are you willing to live in such a way that you move forward despite the uncertainty before you with the belief and the conviction that God is with you? That you're not alone. That he hasn't forgotten you nor abandoned you. You know, it's really interesting. Remember, Satan quotes Psalm 91, right? But he quotes very selectively. He quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, all the stuff about like, the angels will lift you up in their hands and your foot will not strike against a stone. You know, it's really interesting. If you read just two verses earlier in Psalm 91, you know what it says? It says this. Verses nine and 10 of Psalm 91. If you say... The Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling. No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. What are these two verses about? It's about proximity. It's about living in the presence of God. We have this misunderstanding that is pervasive, I believe, in modern Western Christian thought that I can go my own way and do my own thing and make my own choices and and make the decisions that control the trajectory and direction of my life as I please. And God is, is required to go with me. Like we believe that we control our own destinies and that God is a genie in a bottle who is intended to simply go along for the ride that we choose for ourselves. But what is clear here is that God is the center of the universe and actually um, protection and safety through the wildernesses of life is actually dependent upon our willingness to orbit our lives around him, not to ask him to orbit his life around us. If 
make the Most High your dwelling, not if the Most High chooses to make you his dwelling. If you make God the place where you dwell, then no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. In the wilderness of life, the devil often twists and distorts our pain in an attempt to lure us away from God and to seize control for ourselves. And in many ways, this comes down to control. We want to control our story. We want to control our life. We want to control the directions and step by step the trajectory of our lives. But in the wilderness of life especially, God longs to draw near to us, and he is readily available if we would draw near to him. And drawing near to him might mean letting go of control, of relinquishing your ability or desire or longing, really it's inability, to write a story of flourishing for yourself. To relinquish control and to say, I believe that it is in the presence of God, in close proximity to the God who loves me. It is as I draw near to him that I will actually find the sort of life I most desperately long for. In James chapter 4, we read, submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit, not not a popular word in our culture today. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, some of us might be wondering fairly, well, okay, Jay, listen, that's all great. I am trying my best to draw near to God, to live in close proximity to him, to make the Lord my dwelling. But the truth is, my life is still full of pain. So what's the deal, right? Jay, you just told me that if I just draw near to God, then no no emergency landing in Albuquerque, just early flights. Everything will be great. Everything will be grand. I'm trying to draw near to God, but why is it that life is still hard? And I don't have an easy answer, but I do have an answer that I think is clear. Our sinful, broken world is and it will remain a wilderness. Remember, the Israelites, after God parts the seas, they spend four decades in the wilderness before they arrive at the promised land. And I know that that's probably not the ideal answer you want, right? You got up early today, you came to church looking for a little hope, and you're like, wow, dude, this is a total bummer. (laughs) You just told me no matter what I do, life is a wilderness. That is true. It is. And it will be. If you look at the big, long, overarching trajectory of God's story, what you recognize is that God is on a mission to renew and restore all things. But that that story does, the, the, the period at the end of that sentence isn't written until the return of Christ. And we live right now as men and women, those of us who follow Jesus, we live in the tension of living in the reality of the wilderness of this world, this broken, sinful world, and yet called to embody what is possible and what is inevitable when Christ returns. 
that flourishing and joy is possible in the midst of the wilderness, not after it. Certainly after it, but that it is also possible right now. What that means about God's protection in our lives is that God's protection doesn't always look like immediate comfort. God's protection in our lives does not always look like immediate comfort. What it does always look like is eternal certainty. That no matter what you face in this life, no matter what you go through, no matter the ups and the downs and the loss and the grief and the pain and the confusion, the end of the story has already been written. You, as a follower of Jesus, are already on your way to the promised land. That place is coming someday. And that gives us immense hope in the midst of our pain and confusion and trials and uncertainty. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God's protection in our lives through the wildernesses of life as we draw near to him, live in close proximity to his presence, we are infused with this sort of hope, this sort of anchoring truth that in spite of the pain and grief and loss that we face and will continue to face on this side of eternity, though God's protection does not offer all the time immediate comfort, what it does guarantee is eternal certainty, and that infuses your present with a hope that lasts on into the future. This is what close proximity to God's presence does. This is why Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how it works. I don't throw myself in harm's way, testing if it's true that God will really protect me and provide immediate comfort every step of the way. This is why Jesus says, no, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And that test at Massah was a test of God's presence. Jesus is essentially saying, I don't need to throw myself off this rock and put myself in harm's way and see if God brings immediate comfort to know that God is with me, that God is among me, that God is for me. I don't need to do that. I don't test God that way. I believe and I live life with the conviction that God is with me, that God is for me, and that he will never leave me, regardless of what happens in this life. Several years ago, I had a friend, a dear friend named Christina. I've talked about her before, um, who was in her early 20s, incredibly gifted worship leader, newly married. And uh, one day she gets a diagnosis of stomach cancer, and it's aggressive. And the doctors tell her it's months, not years, that we're talking about. She finds herself in and out of Stanford Hospital, and I made several visits to her at Stanford just to be with her, to pray alongside her, to read scripture, to sing, to 
to worship together. And I distinctly remember one day we sat, and I was by her bed, and she's crying. And I'm asking her, hey, what's going on? What's happening inside? And she said, I'm scared. I'm scared. This is scary. It's the thought that I, I don't have much longer left here on earth is a scary thought. And I said to her, you're right. That is scary. And we talked a little longer, and then we read Psalm 23, a psalm many of you know. I'll just read you a part of it. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. If it ended there, the devil would be right. Wherever I go, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. But it doesn't end there. And I will dwell where? In the house of the Lord forever. In the presence of God, who is, who is with me in the darkest valley. Dallas Willard describes this psalm this way. He says that this is a description of the abundant with God life that comes from following the shepherd, where we dwell and abide with God in the fullness of his life. And because of this, we have no reason to be anxious. And I love this line. The world is a perfectly safe place for us to be. What what Dallas did not mean is that no trouble will come your way in this life. What he did not mean was everything will be painless and God will comfort everything that ails you immediately, right away. What I believe Dallas Willard meant was that no matter what we go through, no matter what trials, no matter what struggle, no matter what grief or loss or pain, the world is a perfectly safe place for us to be, because in the wilderness, we can still dwell in the house of the Lord. After we read Psalm 23, Christina was continuing to cry, but she said, um, she didn't say it exactly this way, so I'm paraphrasing, but essentially, what she said was, she looked at me with tears in her eyes, and she said, I'm scared, but I know I'm safe. I'm scared, but I know I'm safe. That's my hope and my prayer for you. That as you look out at the ledge of all that is uncertain with your life, maybe the devil is whispering this lie to you. Go ahead and leap. Doesn't God love you? Aren't you a child of God? No matter what you do, he'll keep you safe, right? As you hear those whispers, may you and I together collectively remember we don't need to test God that way that life will already bring troubles, that our feet will most certainly strike up against the stones of life. There will be pain, there will be grief, there will be loss. But God is for us, he's with us, and he never leaves us. We don't need to test that, we need to believe it and live with conviction that it is true, because it is true. Let's pray together.
God, we, um, we come before you today, this morning, with all that ails us, all that weighs us down, weighs heavily on our hearts and on our minds. We come before you in this moment with all of our struggles, all of our pain, all of our grief, all of our loss, all of our anxiety, all of the internal stuff and external stuff that we can't seem to shake. And we admit to you that our desire, our tendency, my desire, my tendency is to try to grab control and to try to navigate my way through life on my own in a way that seems right to me. But in your goodness, I pray that you would remind us in this moment, you would remind us of the truth that you're with us. You've always been with us and that you'll never leave us and that you are for us and that you know best and that you are willing and able. And so I pray that you would allow us, give us the strength and the conviction to surrender control to you. Give us that strength in this moment. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. As we sing these next couple of songs, I want to invite you. Um, there's a couple of tables up front here and a couple of tables in the back of the room as well. If and as you feel led, want you, as we sing these songs, um, to consider that which you are holding on to for dear life because you believe that your safety is tied to connect it to you holding on. It might be a relationship, it might be a hope or a dream, it might be something deep inside that you can't seem to shake. It might be uncertainty about the world. I don't know what it is, but consider what it is you might be holding on to. And I wanna ask you in these next few moments, if and as you feel led, um, go to one of the tables. There are small uh, pieces of paper and some pens. I want you to just write that down in as much or as little detail as you're comfortable. I want you to write down whatever it is you sense you are holding on to, keeping control because you feel like you won't be safe otherwise. And as an act of surrender, I want you to write that thing down. And then up here at these boards, you'll see like big, bold words, give God control. There are little paper clips. And as an act of worship and prayer, would invite you to take that paper and just put it on a paper clip. We're gonna fill these boards with all that which we are holding on to. And as an act of worship and prayer, um, we're gonna hang them on the, on the board as an act of surrendering these things, surrendering control to God, knowing and believing that he is with us, he's never left us, and he goes before us, okay? Let's all stand and sing, respond, and come uh, whenever you're ready.